1980, director William Lustig took his meager spoils from smut peddling and teamed up with Joe Spinell and Judd Hamilton to craft one of the most disturbing and at the time offensive movies to be given a broad theatrical release. Maniac not only sent the average moviegoer to the bathroom to lose their lunch, but it also conjured some of the most resounding howls of astonishment from cinema's elite critics. But to relegate it to a lowbrow stab at exploitation ignores the fact that this is a well-crafted movie that genuinely sticks in the craw of our fear centers. There is nothing cheesier to campy about it. It is a brutal and harrowing movie. Joe Zito is a character developed from a keen understanding of a wide cross-section of serial killer's psychological profiles. This is a movie made with passion, blood, sweat, and tears, literally and figuratively. So pull up your favorite mannequin, conjure your dead mother, and put away the straight razor for now, and join us as we break it all down on Midnight Flicks. Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker, and joining me on this cinematic expedition, as always, is Pat Mitchell. Well, 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 Pat, the world is officially on fire. Well, officially now. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Well, by the time this uh, episode airs, um, well, we will have bid farewell to Minneapolis, and uh, it's a shame. One of America's great cities. But uh, thusly needed to be burned to the ground, and, uh, you know, here we are now, in the, in the rubble. <laughs> the question is, who's next? Shit popped off in Louisville last night, and of course there was the L.A. thing. There was a Memphis thing. Well, if one of the one more of these things gets filmed and put out there, I mean, I can't imagine that this shit just won't keep happening. Yeah, I'm just wondering because obviously there was the presumption that after Ferguson that this would escalate, and it didn't. 
Um, but now it's like there's almost like a different. This has a different feeling to it, and I'm almost wondering if if that's chalked up to the fact that Ferguson is a small city. Probably nobody knew even knew it was on the fucking map before that happened. Minneapolis, everybody knows that Minneapolis is, you know, what what Minneapolis is. Every every dummy in the U.S. they could maybe maybe find it on a map. So I'm True. just wondering if that's the thing. If it, if it's because a major city like this, you know, like when the L.A. riots happened, that was obviously you know a big thing. That this will stick a little more. That and also we have the the multi the multi pronged attack that's happening here of not just this, but people all out of work now with the virus. We have Trump and you know the. The insurgent right maniacs that we have running this country, right wing maniacs, and you know we're in a recession, probably going to end up being a depression unless decisive action is taken on the parts of people. So maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's like this perfect storm finally that people are just not that they've had enough. Oh, well, certainly. And I, you know, I don't want to speak for both of us, but I know we both uh, think of this as a as a good thing and uh, let let them let them fucking burn as many things as they need to. I, we, both, we both know that that's uh, that's the only thing left to do once backed into a corner. If I could read the Billy Jack monologue again. How apropos that episode would have been right about now. Um, but if I, if I think about what they've done, it makes me want to go berserk. <laughs> I'm wondering if, if Tom Laughlin was alive today, if he would try and reboot that Billy Jack uh, sequel again as Billy Jack takes Minneapolis. Billy or, Jack goes to Minneapolis. Billy Jack yeah, goes very, to Minneapolis. Very possible. So that all happened. And to lighten the mood a little bit, though, would you like to talk about movies that we watched? Or is there any other points of order that you would like to get out of the way? No, that seems like a good segue into movies we've watched and then the movie for tonight. Fantastic. Why don't you head it off? What's Tell me what you've been into. Well, if we're just going to do an all-encompassing media. <laughs> oh, are you, I was going to ask. Actually, what? sorry to interrupt. No, are you go gonna ahead. Talk about, are you going to talk about uh, what we do in the shadows? No, no. I, was, oh. I'm, I wasn't planning on it, but um, I did start well, watching that. Um, uh, well, then carry on, my friend. I was going to say that I... Uh, I finished the new Stephen King book right before we hopped on here. I didn't realize it's not uh, the media we're talking about, but um, it was great. Right? It's a it's another short uh, short story collection, so uh, it's not a not a full novelization. But um, one of the stories uh, called "If It Bleeds" is a direct uh, sequel um, to "The Outsider." So, uh, for people that have read that or seen that on HBO, uh, one of the short stories on there takes place basically right after the events in the outsider and has like a spinoff kind of monster of the week tale. And it fucking, it was so good. It was so good. And I was that I, 
the first story, the first short story in the book is aw- is awful. One of the worst kings I've ever read in my life. Cause he's so, he's notoriously really bad at describing technology. And the first one was like a very technology heavy story. And he's, he's just like, you know, and so I, I sent them a text message on my cellular device. Like he's just awful. Like everything's so bad. Uh, he just can't speak in like modern terms. He has to keep, he has to keep things just like ever presently relevant for any era because once he starts making things, uh, more modern, he, he's, he, it fucking sucks, but it's ended strong. The last two stories, uh, were, were just phenomenal. So the book is called if it bleeds and the short story that's the, uh, that is the link to the outsider is also if it bleeds. So that was excellent. But what about you? What have you enjoyed recently? Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about books, I mean, real briefly, I'll just say that I have been like slogging through blood Meridian. And I don't know if you've read any Cormac McCarthy. Um, I started reading the road years ago and put it down. I had been meaning to read no, uh, no country for old men for a while and haven't been able to. So I was like, all right, well I'll pick this up. And it's been pretty rough for me to read. I don't know whatever, what the reason is. It's just, he has a particularly verbose, he has a really good, weird, interesting writing style, but it's, it's so dense with terminology and, um, adjectives that are very particular to the era that he's talking about. And well, so, so like I didn't know he wrote the road. He wrote the road Rope. and no country for old men. Yes. That's incredible. I love the road with Vigo Mortensen. I, I, like I love that move. Obviously I love no country for old men, but so the road is like, there's like no punctuation in it or there was something I, I remember that was unique about the, his writing for the road. He doesn't, he doesn't use quotes. Ah, okay. Okay. And that also makes it difficult because I'm so used to seeing is, them. Is that um, his style for all his books? Apparently so. I It's been so long since I started reading The Road that I couldn't remember. And I never read any of his other books. So, yeah, I'm just assuming that that's how he writes. On paper, I think that's cool. Well, on paper, that's a bad Maybe that's a bad term. But for, um, <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> theoretically, I like that idea. But uh, yeah, I could see how actually reading it could be a slog. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where, but it's also, it's like, I, I know in my mind as I'm reading, I'm like, this is cool. And it's a really violent, violent book. There's some really graphic. I mean, it's just like, it's a nonstop onslaught of bad things bad things like transgressive things happening because again it takes place in the old west it's mostly focused on mexico and it's like essentially like focused on this this group of like um bounty hunters they're going they're 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 basically they're going to mexico and on the way they're they're fighting indigenous tribes for their scalps. So they're collecting scalps to, to take back to the U S that sounds tight. Yeah. And there's just like a lot of death, a lot of like just fucked up death, a lot of baby death. That sounds, great. 
babies being burned and hung in trees. This is great. This is all great. But I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, no, that's not what I have an issue with. That's not it. The issue I have is just his writing. It's just like, uh, like, it's a lot to absorb. It's not the the content. No, 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 no. No, my friend. I will go down. I've gone down darker paths. You're getting soft on me. Anyways, so that's what I've been doing. And aside from that, I've just been reading a lot of uh, a lot of political stuff. So. Oh God! But I'm well, always reading that. Like I'm always like that's always like in the rotation. Sure. But I'm always I'm I'm always I always have this like list of like books and articles that I'm like reading for things. But as far as nonfiction stuff, that's fun. And it's not even that. That's the thing. The book I'm reading for fun is yeah. Is then you need fun. to have fun if you're reading the book for fun. I mean, like, I, I, I mean, oh, almost, go ahead. I was gonna say I'm almost done with it though. I'm like, I'm like, oh well, yeah. Then you gotta trudge through. Yeah, it's like I'm like 30 pages away. So once I finish it, I I, I don't know what I'm gonna pick up. Harry Potter. Yeah, I only see. I if I'm gonna read, I'm like only almost exclusively gonna read for fun. So I I don't dabble into too much real heavy stuff like there i've had like noam chomsky stuff on my fucking book list for like since i was a teenager i'm not sure i'm ever gonna get around to it oh you should read some i i, I like some noam chomsky's stuff you should uh you well, should see, I throw a historical book in the rotation so in theory that uh a noam chomsky would come up as a possible uh history book because i do like history but i just read about the donner party uh, a book on the Darner Party that was fucking awesome, and so like I'm I'm not in the history book rotation for another like couple books because I'm very specific as to when I start those. So, well, have you read a People's History of the United States? A People's History is is where I um is the obvious starting point is from what I've gathered. It's great. You really like it. I I will I will. I will do it this year. I will read and finish it unless it's like the stand or something. And I'm, I don't know what I'm going to get to. And it's going to take me the better part of a year to read or it, something. It, it's a thick book. I will, I will tell you that, but Howard Zinn's writing style is far more palatable and enjoyable. Um, I think across the board to say like someone like Chomsky, who is like way more academic. Yeah. And he's always referencing different treaties and things like this. And you're just like, unless, you know, you got to be pretty well read on a lot of diplomacy, yeah. diplomacy and things like that to like really know like, okay, what's he talking about? But whereas, you know, Zinn is definitely, he was writing for just the everyday person to, to, to really understand this whole other layer of, of us history that is, you know, is kind of, you know, ignored or propagandized or whatever. So I mean, I I, I hear time and time again, that people's history is like a jumping off point for people that are maybe trying to read up a little bit more about, you know, I don't want to say real history, but <laughs> more, yeah, and, more accurate history. And Zen and just in general was like a cool dude. He seemed like he was like a really cool dude. Like he has a really, he had a really cool history and background. Um, he's just very active in different liberations and civil rights movements. He was, he was a U.S. soldier during the war, during World War II. He was like, uh, he was like 
an air fighter or something. Anyways. Um, so there's that. Um, so if we haven't bored the living shit out of everybody, uh, with some <laughs> Chomsky and Zinn and book talk to start this shit off forever. Whoever's left, we got a real meaty episode here. We got a really good one for you. <laughs> I'm actually real excited to talk about this. And after I rewatched it again for this, it just got me just so pumped. Why and the fuck did we do William Lustig of all people? We did multiple. He's the first director we've done multiple movies for. That just seems strange. I don't know. It struck me as odd as we were watching it. I was like, as I was watching, I was like, of all the people, it seems odd that maybe apropos for uh, uh, this podcast. But nonetheless, I thought it was weird. Yeah, I don't think so because you picked Maniac Cop, and Maniac was on my list. So here we are. That's just how the the dice rolled. My friend cookie crumbles. And he's got other things that I know besides what we've talked about that I'm actually not familiar with that I think are probably cool movies from what I've read. I just admittedly, I'm not, I'm not very well versed in his, his videography is his uh, filmography, excuse me. Um, Beyond these movies, unfortunately, sorry if I'm, I'm outing myself as a film poser in that regards, but yeah, we had to talk about Maniac though. And it, like I said, it was our, it was the last thing on my OG list that I had that I could, you know, you know, talk about uh, right now, as far as uh, things that I knew I had immediate access to. So anyways, when I watched it, I had a choice. I had three different choices on how I could view it this time. Cause I had the DVD, I have the VHS and I still hadn't seen the last drive-in uh, episode about it. And so I knew that if I watched the last drive-in episode of it, that there would be some choice trivia and discussion about it. And because I hadn't seen it yet. And I struck gold because it was also the one where he, where Joe Bob Briggs talks to Tom Savini. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was cool because, you know, even when you research on the Internet, like, you know, a lot of stuff they talk about was like pretty easily accessible, you know, uh, background information. But like they had their own spin on it and were able to, I think, add a little bit more like details to some of the some of the history and trivia. So I was I watched it that way and I'm I'm glad I did. Yeah, that's an excellent way to watch it. Yeah. So anyway, so um, that being said, um, you know, we foregone the Ebert, you know, review thing uh, for a while now. But I do want to, before I get into the movie synopsis, head it off real quick to talk about some reviews about this. Because this movie, when it came out, was absolutely critically eviscerated. Yeah, I think it's an important narrative uh, to tackle beforehand. Because it, yeah, it's it's, it's basically... Uh, was basically seen as like a snuff film or a quasi kind of snuff film. Yeah. So it almost got an X rating and in order to avoid the X rating, basically Lustig just didn't submit it for review. He, they, the producers and he, he just, they're like, we would rather have this have no rating than have an X rating. Cause obviously that's the scarlet letter. No one's going to fucking watch it. So this was unrated. Um, 
uh, yeah, critically pretty much panned. Uh, most critics were completely reviled by this. Um, particularly, and <laughs> I know we say fuck Ebert a lot, but this one really, this is a fuck Siskel. Siskel, yeah. Siskel really dug into this movie and to the point where I think his opinion of it and what he said about it actually ruined its exposure to a larger audience. And yeah, the distribution bit, of it was completely fucked because of his stupid whiny ass. Right. And I'll get a little bit more into it with the trivia. But essentially, he just said it had no redeeming value whatsoever. After one particular scene, which we'll get into uh, more when we talk about the good, the bad, and the questionable, he just walked out. He was like, at that point, I he, he couldn't hang. So he was so morally revolted by this movie. Um, but... As with a lot of these movies, because if they're a good movie, you know, they'll stand the test of time somehow, regardless of whatever, you know, she fucking bougie critic has to say about it. And that's really what it is. It was all these like, you know, high minded liberal critics. When I say liberal, you know, I mean it not in the sense of like, you know, like I'm coming from like some right wing fucking dickhead you know, standpoint, but just like, you know, the, the fucking, the whiny, like, you know, like do gooders, they really like couldn't hang. So they wanted to like, just fucking toast this movie for, you know, for other people. Um, but it rose above all, all of those, uh, impediments. And it has since been regarded as a classic and rightfully so because, this movie is it's really it's 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 a really good movie. I mean it's 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 a disturbing movie. And you know, it, it takes what is essentially, you know, a well trod sort of like idea, I feel like, but it just is able to add its own really genuine, gritty, unique spin on it to make it like different than any other slasher. So it's just like it's like it's 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 a hybridization of of all the things that make a slasher good into one movie or, or a, a movie that is like a profile of a serial killer, essentially. So that's what I'll say about that right up the top. Do you have anything to add before I get into the synopsis? No, no, you're doing a great job, but thank you. I appreciate your, uh, your, your encouragement. It's, it's, oh, fuck. I'm back, baby. Sorry. Thank you. Oh, I was worried for a second there. I was like, oh, shit. Man down. Man down. Danger, Will Robinson. Okay. So, what to say about this movie for those of you that are not familiar with it? This is basically what I had to say about it. A troubled loser haunted by abuse received by his mother during childhood murders young women and takes their scalps as trophies. He decorates mannequins uh, that are festooned throughout his apartment. Uh, with these trophies that he's taken from his victims. Uh, basically, what it seems to be an attempt to suppress the demons and voices that haunt him uh, from his past, um, essentially from his... Uh, the He keeps kind of hearing his abusive mother in its head. So this is, you know, a, a, a nod to uh, Psycho in, in that regard. So this is, you know, like like I was saying, it's a reboot of that theme. The tormented loner that simultaneously loves and hates and is tormented by his 
evil, demonic, abusive mother. Yeah, it's a real hodgepodge uh, of every serial killer stereotype. <laughs> I wouldn't even say stereotype, but pretty much every serial killer, um, you know, pillar that is known about most of them is is the construction of this character. Right, and you can see throughout the film, uh, the character is is it's equal parts Ed Gein, uh, Son of Sam, Zodiac Killer, all kind of rolled into one. And also, um, uh, somatic, cinematically, it's 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 a lot of different profiles all added together. You know, like I said, the aforementioned Psycho being you know a strong a strong uh, foundation of the story. But even uh, I would say that things that came before it, like Deranged, which I feel like was kind of the uh, or or uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre for that matter. Yeah. Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, so on and so forth. So, with that being said, let's move into the good, the bad, and the questionable. said this a couple times but this is another movie where it's like i it it was it was lacking in the bad for me lots and lots of good definitely had some questions so um yeah right off the top like i said uh to reiterate this is just a really good mix of a lot of different elements it has a little something for everybody i think uh when it comes to um an appreciation for the slasher genre uh, the atmosphere is amazing too. Uh, as we talked about with the <clears throat> with the Maniac Cop episode, Lustig more so than just about any other director of of the genre was really able to tap into the gritty underbelly of New York. Maybe Friedkin also to a certain extent, you know. But if we're talking about horror movies specifically, because Friedkin's foray into horror movies really wasn't that that far. But Friedkin, Lustig. Uh, Larry Cohen, these are people that kind of come to mind immediately that are able to tap into that that old uh, bombed out war zone murder land. <laughs> Grindhouse, New York. Yeah. Grindhouse, New York. And this one does it really, really well. Uh, f- kill scenes happen right away. It, there is no real exposition whatsoever. We get to see death in the first few scenes. And it doesn't really stop him there. There's a little bit of a lull once we get towards the end, like what would be considered like the the last acts. Yeah. And, you know, it's getting, you know, where there's more character development in the sense of trying to see if Frank Zito, played by Joe Spinell, um, who I'll get into more here, um, is redeemable from, from his uh, maniacal ways. So... Also, right off the bat, love the soundtrack. This soundtrack's so cool. It's got that thing, it's got that device that I really like that is employed in horror movies where the disturbing, violent scenes are being 
essentially predicted or foreshadowed by this low hertz synthesizer hum. Mm-hmm. And that to me, like whenever I hear that in a movie, I'm like, oh, it's almost like I kind of like. I get my old face. <laughs> it gives thought, me goosebumps. I thought you were like, you look like maybe like a baby ready for his bottle. That too. <laughs> if you want to get into a Freudian thing, both. Both. <laughs> so right baby. off the top. <laughs> no, no, no. Baby, 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 baby what? Say, baby's ready for his dick bottle, but then I stopped. So now you <laughs> made me say it. I made you say it. I made you do it. Why? <laughs> I told you not to go out. And suck that daddy dick you're bottle. The, you're the voice in my head. <laughs> oh, Pat. Okay, so those are my things, like, right off the top. But I want to hand it off to you, my friend. Tell me, what do you like about this movie, Pat? Um, the, the thing that jumped out to me right away was uh, Lustig really makes you wait for a lot of the kills. They don't happen, like... Uh, they're drawn out and it's like, it's a real tension builder. Every single time you know who's going to die and it's a foregone conclusion and yet you have to really sit through it before it happens. And not in a bad way. Like it's a very like nail biting situation. The the nurse in the, in the subway bathroom, that, that's like one of the best examples of it. I mean, you think she's dead for about 20 minutes before she actually gets it. Um, I love that scene, but all of the, all of the murder sequences are, are just really, it, you, you seriously are surprised when he, when he jumps out and finally kills them. Like it, it comes as a surprise almost every time. And it's that, it's that method of like, if you draw something out long enough that the audience will drop their guard and then you can like, you can kind of come down with the death blow and it's almost more satisfying that way. So this, this does a really good job of that. Um, yeah. Well, let me jump in too. I would yeah. say also specifically with that final, what would be considered the final death scene uh, uh, or the penultimate, I, I suppose with Rita, where mm-hmm. he leads you to think that he's going to, he's going to actually spare this victim. You're like, Oh, well maybe, you know, this will snap out of it. And then he doesn't. He no. kills her anyways. Yeah, that one's also drawn out in in like a <laughs> real beautiful way. Like you're just like you're lulled into a into a, a sense of security, which is a, a hallmark of a of a great horror movie. Is able to do that, and it's not just it's not just a mile a minute murder shit. It's it, it yeah. It's got to set the table. I want I want fucking three courses here. Four courses, shit. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention too um, that first initial kill scene with the 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 boyfriend and girlfriend on the beach. I don't know how much you know about the Zodiac Killer, but I a while back I was reading a, a number of true crime books. I fell down a Zodiac Killer rabbit hole for a while, and I feel like that is almost a direct homage if you want for lack of a better term to what was a a pretty famous zodiac killer murder where the zodiac killer found some people on the beach and tied them up and murdered them yeah 
Yeah. And plus the, um, not to mention the Tom Savini on the date, uh, that was his MO too, was, was people that were just parked out, um, like on, you know, lover's lane or whatever the fuck. And he would come up and, and kill like people on a date and shit too. Like that was very reminiscent. Yeah. He, Joe Spinell definitely, who obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but he wrote this and is, is the plays, the serial killer in this, but yeah, the, the summer of Sam stuff is definitely the Berkowitz stuff is definitely ever present. Cause like the way, the way one person can kind of grip, a city specifically New York that is like in there um, yeah. as well as, as well as, yeah, very much so Zodiac killer shit. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a composite of a lot of different killers, but I definitely got that from the opener too, as well totally as totally. Jaws, which I, I thought Jaws and then I read yes. Jaws later on. I didn't, I yeah. did not know that. I was getting Jaws vibes, just like a night beach death always gives me Jaws vibes for obvious reasons. (laughs) So when I read that, I was like, holy shit, that's cool that they did that. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, uh, would you like to continue, my friend? Sorry for my interjections there. No, that's great. Um, The rest is just just scenes that are fucking tight. The Savini getting his fucking cabeza split with that shotgun – not even split obliterated is like a top three head explosion scene behind like scanners and chopping mall. Uh, yeah, it is ridiculous. It's just, it is just like 10, 10 pounds of gore in a five pound bag. Like it's so, <laughs> it's so good. It's on, unne- it's an unnecessary amount. And yet I want more, uh, that scene, as well as the the combo, kind of in the final act, where the mother reaches out from the grave. I love that. Yeah. That stupid, corny little. It, it works though. I, I I think it's tight. And then obviously the complete disemboweling, dismemberment uh, scene at the end is just it. It struck me. Uh, it struck me how well it held up. I I. I think I literally out loud was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, I think I forgot how ridiculous it is. Well, yeah. And right there too, talking about how this is like a composite of a lot of different horror styles right there. It, it even includes zombie horror, zombification yeah. horror. Yeah. it re- Yeah, it does. It, it, which yeah. is uh, a, a weird thing to, throw in there as well but it's it's weird because we're talking about how it's pulling from all these different um inspirations and and stylizations but it all the while the film remains unique to itself and is like a unique movie like it's pulling from all these places and and yet like this movie is kind of unlike a lot of movies even before or after i mean um I can't think of too many movies that are like this. Maybe like Henry portrait of a serial killer is Mm -hmm. like in the, in a similar vein, but like, um, this one is grittier than that. Even. I would say it's grittier, but even it's weirder. It's just, it's has, well, cause Henry doesn't have the like psychological angle to it. So It, it does, but it's almost like it's not as pronounced. Henry, uh, Henry, 
the character of Henry Lee Lucas and how he's portrayed, not to get off on a tangent too much, because I want to talk about that movie at some point too. But Bill, this should that, be the serial killer discussion episode. <laughs> when the way that Michael Rooker plays Henry Lee Lucas in that movie and the way he's portrayed, he there is zero sympathy for him at all. Like he is just a stone cold fucking psychopath has no regards for his victims. Whereas with this movie, there is room for sympathy. You feel that, that Frank Zito is a, is a tortured, tormented individual that it's almost like we're going to talk about more serial killers, like Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was a similar person where like, it's like he just couldn't help himself. He was so compelled to kill his victims and he had what was seemingly a large degree of regret. But then there's serial killers on the other hand that have no regret whatsoever. They kill their victims. They're fine with it. Whatever. Fuck them. They're dead. Whereas yeah, again, and I know we're not we're not supposed to romanticize or or, you know, quote unquote, have favorite serial killers. <laughs> But, but I do. But I do. Yeah, but fuck you. I do. And uh, I, I genuinely – I have a com- complex relationship with Jeffrey Dahmer. He's by far my favorite, at least the most interesting to me for those various reasons. It, yeah. It's almost as if like he, he did not like the mess of the actual – like the, the killing nauseated him to yeah. where he needed to get almost – incapacitated in order to do it he want yeah. he's a product killer he needed the yeah. actual the bodies is what he is all he was looking for the companionship right uh, and so he's more of a product killer whereas whereas you know some of these other killers that do it more for like like a bundy he's he's a uh he's more of like a, a well, pure sociopath a, yeah pure a, sociopath a, a pure yeah. sociopath yeah he, yeah um. Yeah, so I guess what I wanted to say next was just just in general to talk about Joe Spinell and Joe Spinell's delivery of this character. And we kind of have been talking about this already. The dedication I feel like he put to compositing the profile for this character. Like you could tell he did a lot of research and he had a like a real like love and appreciation for the investigative aspect and the psychological aspect of of what makes a serial killer. So and and like I feel like he really did represent the role very well and um <laughs> it's just like like I said there's times where like when he's like crying or like getting like like you know whimpering about the murders that like again you 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 want to feel sorry for him, even though he's he is a murderer. But at, at the same time, he just switch he can switch on a dime and be that maniac and that and he has that insane look in his eyes when he's killing like that. Just like <laughs> he's iconically pegged uh, to a T. Yeah, and he's just like he looks like he would be a serial killer. Like he's just like this middle aged dish schlubby pockmark. He looked like David Berkowitz. Yeah, exactly. He totally did. A total so, fucking nerd. And I think it's also, it's kind of a, it's it's a testament to the fact that going into this, even though Joe Spinell wasn't in any way a leading man, he had, you know, he had a, 
uh, history in film. Like, you know, he had been in some very well-known films and he was well-connected to the film industry, you know? So it's like, even though this is a low-budget indie film, the people that that went, that put money into it and, and made it knew what they were doing. They weren't just like... These, these these weren't amateur hacks. Like this, this is definitely like a, a passion project for them. Exactly, that's exactly what I was gonna say. It's it was a passion project made by people that probably could have like done more high profile roles. Like they banded this is together like, to make it happen. Yeah, with Spinell particularly, like you know, being that he was in other movies before this that like were blockbusters that were like you know Oscar winners. He. This is like almost like a suicide mission. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a risky career move for sure, but it speaks to the passion that he had for the project too, which is commendable. Um, you know, I I love that he did this because uh, horror is is the death nail for like a lot of fucking people's careers. Either you start in it and you right. can't get out of it. Yep. Uh, unless you're like Drew Barrymore or some shit, um, or you're relegated to it later in your career, like Brittany Murphy, who like fucking went like this and then was like in B direct to video horror movies until she fucking died. So like, yeah, totally. It, it's, like, a, it's a real, it's a real fucking hornet's nest. Yeah, like John Houston. John Houston, if like another prime example, this like Hollywood royalty guy that had been in all these like movies and then towards the end of his life is in these like really bad B movie horror. Like it's just yeah, it's yeah, it's it's interesting like how certain actors and actresses navigate that um that kind of minefield. Um Zito's apartment is genuinely creepy and surreal and fucking weird. And it's just like, it's almost like it exists in a completely different dimension. Um, and that is where you can tie in with this movie. The, I feel the Italian kind of influence because in a lot of ways, I feel like the color palette and the, the just the use of the mannequins as actual like parts of the story, like they're integral to the story. That is a very Italian device. And so that, that apartment to me, like just fascinates me. Like I could like, I feel like there could be like a whole compendium written just about Frank Zito's fucking creepy little cubicle apartment. So, yeah, I was like constantly anticipating like, uh, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt to like come busting through the fucking door. Like it felt like a seven. Uh, he felt like a seven villain. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. The, the, um, the response of the police um, to Zito, I want to get into with the questionable because yes, with, if it was a seven scenario, then the logical steps taken would have been what you think a cop would do. But the cops don't do that in this situation. But we'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> um, let's see what else we've already talked. Like specifically, I want to talk about more about just that scene where the couples, the disco couples get fucking brutalized. And yeah, like you were saying, like how Zito just jumps out of nowhere. Well, kind of like he's he's seen by the the lady, but basically 
she's just kind of like poo pooed as being like, you know, hysterical. And so, but then, you know, when he actually appears there in the, in the, the fog, in the, in the headlights and then just jumps onto the hood and. Yeah. So he's not doing enough. He's doing the quintessential, uh, you know, guy or girl in a horror movie that is taking their sweet fucking time at, while the audience screams at the television to move your ass. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about more about Savini in this role. And I had this on my good. Let's talk about Savini's mustache. Well, yeah. Yeah. Top it's, five mustache rides of my life, I would imagine. And they talked about this when Savini was on Last Ride Event 2. And I had always speculated this as well. I just assumed. But you could tell just from that scene, the way he looks and everything about it. You know, Tom Savini was getting hella ass back then. My my God. Yeah. I mean, how could he not? Other than the fact that I imagine he's like five foot three. <laughs> he does look like he's a shorter guy, but I don't think he's like he he's not dancing short. <laughs> he's got to be short, right? That guy's got to yeah. be really short. I would say he's probably like five six. Yeah, five six so, is an exaggeration. But like <laughs> Tom Cruise height, like you'd meet Tom Cruise and you'd have to look down at him. Like it's yeah. one of those situations. But yes, agreed. He, he was uh, pulling it in. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just neck neck deep in that shit. <laughs> neck deep. <laughs> um, what else do I have? Oh yeah, I love the the again to talk more about the kill scenes. The sword in the back. Oh my sword god! The yeah, and just just the fact that that Frank Zito like he has this array of weaponry in his home. Yeah, he doesn't use the same thing, uh, which is the only thing you were right on the money. By the way, Tom Savini is five six. Uh, nice. <laughs> um, is the only thing that kind of bucks the trend or goes again goes in the face of of almost every single serial killer outside of some anomalies here or there. Uh, have their like weapon of choice so to right. see that was was fun yeah he doesn't have a clear he his mo doesn't have a clear device that's consistent but it's just like the sword it's just like it's like it's almost like it's like a pirate cutlass so he has like this like pirate sword that he uses along with his you know dismantable shotgun that he puts in the violin case which yeah. is pretty ingenious you mm-hmm. know to, mm-hmm. um and then, of course, he garrots and he utilizes the the straight razor to remove the scalps. Real fucking so, jack of all trades. Yeah. So his methodology is, is I feel, very robust for serial killing. Um, I feel like for my good, we've talked pretty much everything. We talked about the zombie mom sequence. That end sequence is fucking nuts. Um, ooh, let's see what else. Yeah, and just like, you know, it goes without saying, of course, the Tom Zavini's practical effects are top notch. Tom Savini never fails to deliver in a movie. He's he is truly is the master of his craft. He's undefeated. So that's all I got for that. What about you? Yeah, we can move on to bad. I don't have any bad. I honestly don't have any bad. No I tried bad. No I tried bad. I'm I'm I want you to bring it because I, I just couldn't think of anything. I could not. I'm sorry. Okay. Bad plans. I'm, I'm relying on you. Thank you. See, I knew you would come through with the <laughs> bad plans, which horror movies are, are chock full of them. But hiding in a bathroom stall needs to be retired in the annals of worst plans that you could do in a horror movie. It is, 
It is unequivocally the worst idea. Always, I don't understand the idea of of locking yourself in a bathroom stall and then and standing on the toilet as the doors get <laughs> as the doors get kicked in one by one, and you're just like awaiting death. Like it's those the bathroom stall is the waiting room of murder. Like you are just you are not you are being complacent in your own murder instead of actively trying to survive. Uh, yeah. So bad plan by the nurse. But I do like the twist on it. It's not a kick down every stall door. It's a breath of fresh air. I've survived. Let me uh, toss some of this New York City fucking sewer water into my face to wake up a little bit. And then she gets it. So that was cool. Um, and so we didn't mention this specifically, but it, it's fairly obvious. The film, This film was to say a shoestring budget is doing it like a favor. I mean, this was one of the low, it's, it is a low, low budget movie. And yeah. at times it shows a little bit, it, you know, there's just, there's a number of long shots that are like out of focus and there's just shit. That's just blurry as fuck and kind of just shittily shot. And I imagine there just wasn't enough time for reshoots or money or resources allocated for, shooting things multiple times when you're on a budget like that. So I totally get that. And, you know, when you're coming up with bad and there's not, you know, there's nothing really, you're enjoying the movie, you have to kind of come up with with shit that that is, you know, in that category. So I am by no means uh, shitting on the movie, but because it felt it's a rushed movie on a low budget, there's just shots that are just like... What, did I take my fucking glasses off? Did, did my glasses get knocked off my face? Because that's, yeah. that's how blurry it was. Well, and okay, so it's funny that you mentioned that because that was actually a thought that did cross my mind was the lack of attention paid to some of the cinematography or like the, the you know the technical aspects of of the the, the shooting, but. I was, I just, I guess I was so enveloped with how much I wanted to talk about the cool stuff about this movie that I, I did gloss over some of that in my mind, the technical issues with it. But you're right. Every establishment shot is, is blurry as fuck. Like when when he's (laughs) establishing wherever the, the, these characters are, it is like a wide shot of like a blurry ass, like. Am I looking at a disco? Is this a fucking war? <laughs> like, am I, is this a goddamn park? Like, I don't know what's going on. And then, and then everything's fine from there. But yeah, that's all the bad I had, though. I didn't have anything else. All right, good. Well, thank you for coming through with that. I, yeah, I totally did. <laughs> I was relying on you to, to come up with something bad because I, I try I, to put something in every category. At least, yeah. you know, I try. And I and I really did too, but I was I was not. I was not on top form with that one. I apologize. Don't fire me yet. We pick each other's slack up. Yes. Okay, questions. There's definitely some questions with this. One right off the top, I've always wondered, and I think I kind of had this answered at some point. I think I know what it is, but what the fuck does Frank Zito do? Like, he lies. (laughs) I did not have that written down. It's a good question. He he lies to um, Anna, his his potential girlfriend there, his the the lady he's courting there towards the end, and says, Oh, I'm an abstract artist. That's clearly bullshit. I think at some point I had read or heard that he's like a he's basically a tenement supervisor. He's a super. Oh. Well that's if why that, he has if a, that's a, true, it's uh, definitely not established. 
he has all those keys in his apartment on the wall. So that's where that is a potential interesting, you know, detail that would, but otherwise, yeah, you have no idea how this guy has money. Cause he's like, I have plenty of money when he's like buying the prostitutes, which is the segue to my next question. This was another thing that got brought up on uh, the last drive in. Uh, and then I had to have this discussion with Charlotte as well. The prostitutes menu that they provide. That was at so, the top of my question list. So, so, okay. So yeah, I'm sure that, that you had the same questions was there's, here's the four things. There's the regular, the f- regular with French, the round the world and the ultimate. Now my question is what is the <laughs> difference between the round the world and the ultimate? Because the round the world implies you're getting it all. So the my theory, I would oh, go ahead. <laughs> this is my theory. Round the world is. Well, let's start with 25. Re- let's start at the bottom here. What's regular? What even regular is ambiguous. Regular is just straight up missionary fucking no kissing, nothing else. Okay. Just, what's French and regular? That's where you can make out. You can you can kiss. You can so make out. So for twenty five dollars, you can have missionary sex with no kissing. For fifty, you can kiss and have missionary sex. And for so seventy five is around the world. Seventy five is around the world. This is what I I assumed was sucking and vaginal fucking any which way you can. The ultimate is all no uh, all holes available. Hmm. So all holes available. There's not all holes available around the world. I don't know how else. I would you say can distinguish all between holes the available two. all around. So around, <laughs> around the world, all holes available. A hundred okay. for the ultimate. That just means a couple fingers in the ass. Your ass. Okay. As the John. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that too. Or just in general, just like every kind of kink is on the table. It, minus anything that like would, would put bodily harm, put the prostitute into bodily, you know, a realm of bodily harm. Well, because I was about to say, if that's the case, then he paid for the ultimate. <laughs> he did. He got his money's worth for sure. Well, sort of. I mean, he didn't fuck her. That's the thing. There's no there's no penetrative sex whatsoever. Well, as he we just, know, uh, most serial killers are either impotent, impotent or impotent. have a some the wires were crossed early on in life where sex equals violence. And that's so, the only way daddy can come. Yeah, he got off in his way, but not in. Not in the normal folk way. And I was going to answer your other question about what does he do for a living? And I don't know if you're ever going to mention this or how you felt about it, but I actually really enjoy the remake of this movie. Um, yes. Like a lot more than I thought with Elijah Wood. Uh, first of all, I like, I love Elijah Wood a lot. I think he makes like really smart choices. Um, and I think the remake for this is it, it does that thing where it, it doesn't much needed update on a movie without like shitting all over it or just being a shot for shot rehashed remake. Like it gives you new shit and it gives it an update for like, you know, the 21st century. But also what I was going to mention was I, I, I own this movie because I reviewed it once upon a time 
long ago. And um, I thought I remember Elijah Wood working like in his mother's like uh, shop of some sort. And he trades and sells the mannequins. I thought he like dressed mannequins for a living. And so that was part of what he did. And that's why he was around mannequins all the time is because he kind of traded in these mannequins. Yes. But I haven't seen it in a long time. But I thought that's what he did for a living in that movie. That is correct. That's what he does in that movie. And yes, I do really, really like that remake. That is one of the rare uh, instances of me genuinely liking a remake and would consider putting it on par with the original, but still not, not quite, but yes. No, I'd much, yeah, I'd much rather watch this any day of the week, but it's a, it's a more than serviceable remake, but yeah, that, that might answer, that doesn't answer your question, but I think that's what a good remake does is maybe take these kinds of questions and be like, you know what, we should give them like a occupation in this new one. So that I like that they did that. Well, there is a question too, like in this original, where does he get the mannequins from? There's that too. Yeah. There's a lot. Those questions, I like the the turn that they do in the remake. It's those all those questions are answered almost automatically because he's other working thing at that, a thrift shop or whatever. Yeah, or like he could be like a security guard at a warehouse, yeah, or something. Yeah, Jeffrey Anyways. Dahmer once uh, notoriously hid in the bathroom of a of a retail store, and when it closed, stole a mannequin. Yeah, that was that was his. That this is why he's so uh, this is why he's so more complex than most serial killers. This is when he was still trying to figure out how to not kill somebody and still uh, be with someone that doesn't talk or move. <laughs> right. Yeah. Also worked at a chocolate factory too. Yes. Yeah. Which that uh, Ambrosia doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. R.I.P. Ambrosia. Yeah. Let's see. What else? Um, where is the bath? Speaking of Zito's apartment, where is the bathroom? Where does he go to shit? Like you kind of see th- this bathroom is the most like Soviet block, bare bones project fucking uh, thing. There's like he has like one of those little just. Could this be a, like a dorm room style setup, though, where it's like a communal bathroom on that floor? That is my best guess that I could think of because Does that yeah, exist like in living quarters outside of college campuses. Well, in Europe, they have them. That's why they're so fucking filthy. But also, <laughs> no, like even here in the U, like in Seattle, there's apartments that are sold that are just basically like cubicles that have communal bathrooms, and they're st- and the, and they rent out for like thousands of dollars a month. Oh, okay, that's weird. It's because that's the post-capitalist neoliberal hellscape that we live in. But particularly, like, as progressive as Seattle is in many ways, it's just been, like, shit upon by developers and just, like, it's just it's it's just raped by developers. So, like, yeah, we have these kind of just hovels that people will pay thousands of dollars for because there's a lot of tech people that move here from wherever and they're getting – they get stipends essentially to live in these little – these little rat holes, these modern rat holes. Anyway, so yes, that is the thing that exists here. But oh. I've also seen them, seen them in Europe. Um, there's like hostels and hotels too, like that. I stayed at a lot of hostels in Europe that were communal bathrooms. Oh, yeah, or yeah, living for sure. quarters. 
Um, but yeah, so that would be my guess because he doesn't have one. He has a sink. You see, at some point, you see a sink, but no, 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 no throne, man. Well, a sink Plus, and a pinch can really take yeah, a load he, off. Yeah, he could be just dumping in a bucket or a bedpan. Who knows? I mean, a guy like that. Who knows? Yeah, um, the least of his words. Big, big question that a lot of people had, even like this is a critic thing. What would a woman like Anna slash Carolyn Monroe have? Why would she want anything to do with a person like Frank Zito? He time and time again, That my question was more specific than that, but he time and time again gives her no reason to. I mean, yeah, he's not like putting on the charm by any means. I specifically just put down, how does, quote, my name is Frank Zito. You took a picture of me in the park, gain him entrance into her apartment. I don't know. You would think that would be the exact opposite. You'd be like, wow, you were stalking me. You fucking Excuse me. That was it was like, oh, come on in. That was that's so strange. And the like the grip that that David Berkowitz had on New York and in the, you know, the summer of Sam, it. Like people were like changing their fucking hair color when they when they realized the profile, let alone letting people in. So like this movie's meant to make you believe because through a series of headlines, almost after every murder, you see a, a newspaper headline. Right. So it makes you think that the the city is gripped in fear, and this idiot is just <laughs> letting in anybody just that. He may that may have randomly had their picture taken in the fucking park earlier. Yeah, yeah, and she, yeah, she. There's no chase at all whatsoever. She's just like immediately like, yeah, let's go on a date. Like, like he, and is yeah, it's more, jarring. It's it, from when she lets him into the apartment, and what I, for lack of a better term, the courtship that follows is like. Am I watching the same movie? Did, like, <laughs> why is this happening right now? Yeah, it's that is incredibly jarring. To give a little backstory to Joe Spinell, though, as far as in real IRL, if a, if a man like Joe Spinell would have any chance with a woman like uh, Caroline Monroe, legend has it that he he had no problems with the ladies, though that he was oh, a very Joe well Spinell in real life. Absolutely. Yes. It is yes. on uh, almost a Savini level of being able to, to real, really reel it in. Yeah. Also, I wanted to comment real quick. I like that you're wearing what appears to be Zumbas. <laughs> I am. These are my uh, daytime Zumbas. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um Question, I mentioned this earlier when we, we talked about uh, Seven and the methodology of the investigative police, the detectives. These motherfucking cops, first off, they just bust into this dude's apartment. No warrant, nothing. They see that he's dead for all intents and purposes. Well, that's that's left to be open. I'll get that to that here in a second. They scan the apartment. And then they just leave. Okay, no cop would ever do that. Yeah. Even in the, the shitty cop climate that we live in right now, th- there would be more of a process to entering his premise, and they would stay there 
and call for backup if they hadn't already. And they would attend to the premise. These these fucking jokers bust in. They're like, oh, he's dead. Nothing to see here. Take a lunch. <laughs> Not only that, I it the whole end the whole thing is fucking confusing because I you know I'm con- I'm convinced that he he disassociates the murders and the mannequins he's talking to are obviously the the dead bo- the dead bodies of the women that he's murdered and it's his way of disassociating mm-hmm. the you know the the act of the killing to the the conversational nature of you know the way he t- he speaks with them afterwards mm-hmm. so is the apartment not just riddled with fucking dead bodies i don't understand the like i thought the mannequin thing was only like a it, the way he views them i don't what, since we don't ever see a, a, a disposing of any of these bodies in theory the cops would come into an apartment that was not only him dead for whatever reason but his victims strewn about i would have imagined that's what i that's what i didn't under, also didn't understand like obviously the victims dismembering him limb from limb is 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 a, is a fantastical part of the movie that is almost you know unexplainable i mean right right yeah you don't know whether he's having a well a delusion a or delusion or, or whether <laughs> obviously the other part of that is not can't be true it's not like his victims actually came to life and to kill him but i also just assumed that the bodies were everywhere in the apartment so that adds more questions because that means the cops came in and saw a fucking a stockpile of festering corpses yeah, a, like I, nothing a proverbial <laughs> yard of fucking limbs and they're like too much paperwork. Let's just close the, <laughs> close the door. <laughs> Come on, Joey. Let's go get a slice. Close the door and back out. Yeah. I do I have, know. talking about the mannequins, actually, I do have a retroactive bad that I did want to talk about that I okay. did think of. Uh, Frank Zito's curating or creating of the mannequins look with the scalps is, is just very, very poorly applied. There's no like finesse or technique to it whatsoever. Uh-uh, no, when he takes the scalps, he just kind of like, he just kind of like shittily like puts them on their, on the, on the dome and just taps like one fucking <laughs> like, uh, like <laughs> nail in there. And it's like, Oh, pretty girl doesn't brush their hair. You would think there'd be some artfulness to it. Like if yeah, this, if man, this, like if you, whether you're, you're uh, a garbage man, yeah, take yeah. some pride in your work. Doesn't matter. Like you're like a fucking CEO or a garbage man. Be like passionate about what you do. <laughs> I know. Be a Picasso. Be a be a fucking Picasso with the, your with the, your art. Dahmer, yeah. Dahmer literally would bathe with these motherfuckers and then drag those assholes to bed and then just delicately lick and suck their nipples. I mean, <laughs> the, the amount of passion he had was was undoubtedly question. I mean, come on now. Yeah, so uh, there you go. I did have a bad. There it is. Um, <laughs> if you're going to kill and harvest young women, at least fucking do, do 
care about it. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So their life wasn't in their murder wasn't in vain. I'm with yeah, you. If we're, if we're talking about if we're talking about Gein as a reference, like Gein, there was an artifice to what he did. He actually, you know, he assembled these whole suits and you know, t- it seems like he took some time and you know in, into the project, but whatever. Well, yeah, uh, it, you, I, I'm of the fervent belief that if uh, fucking Joanne Fabrics existed back then, uh, that he would probably nothing. Ed Gein would probably never have even become anybody because he would have had the crafting delights of Joanne Fabrics to go to, but instead he only had the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And and that and when that well ran dry, you know, he eventually had to had to get the real thing. Yeah, I have one last thing. It's real, real quick, real minuscule. But the uh, valet, <laughs> the valet service at that disco that the Savini and his his Goyle is at, <laughs> is like the, that's the shittiest, most broke ass valet <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. You, know, you, you didn't think you had bad? That was also in the bad. That that is bad. That is his job. But I I put it as a question. It's like, real? Why is there even a valet for this dump? That's true. That's also true. Got to feel fancy. Got to feel fancy. All right. So that's my questions. What else? You got anything else? No. Other than to say they have fucking bullshit valet at that (laughs) whatever asshole bar that is in Broderpool, like the piano (laughs) bar or whatever the dueling piano bullshit. Oh, is that in Bro- See, I always thought. The- oh, I was saying, what is it? Uh, there's some place downtown in Indianapolis. It's like a there's piano. There's also bar. a like dueling piano bar downtown, but the one I'm thinking of is in Broad Ripple. And at, at least at one time or another, they had valet for that fucking dump shit. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's a thing. I yeah. Well, Just we'll park across the street illegally at the Kroger. Jesus. <laughs> Like everybody else. Oh, I know what place you're talking about now, too. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that place. I'm surprised it's still there. Um, no, I'm pretty sure it's a subway. So We'll have to talk maybe if we have time a little bit off the mic about oh, Indianapolis. No, you, yeah, I don't. I really don't mean to belabor this point, but Three Sisters yeah. moved in there. I forgot. Three Sisters is there now. That's sick. That place is cool, and I'm glad that they're still yeah. there. Anyway, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and this was okay. the Indianapolis update. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you want to visit there after you're able to leave your homes? Well, I don't have COVID updates for Three Sisters, so I'm, I'm who the fuck knows. Yeah. There we go. That rounds off the questionable. Then we're going to move into our awards and categories section. I told you not to go out. Tonight, didn't I? Every time you go out, this kind of thing happens. This has got to stop. It's silly. And it's not getting us anywhere. You think they don't know? They do. I heard it. And I know. They all know. And I don't like it anymore. But you don't listen, do you? It's got to stop. Oh, you're right about them all. And right up, all the right up at the top, we got quotes. Quotes? Yes. Yep. There's some pretty good quotes in this. There's not a whole lot. You know, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie. It's mostly uh, 
I have Frank. nothing written down, so wow me, daddy. It's just Frank kind of mumbling to himself, mumbling. Oh, great. This is a great category. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't have a lot, but um, there's that whole inner dialogue that he has that's pretty good where it's just like ran- totally rambling, insane, nonsensical um, stream of conscious shit. Um, but basically, you know, he also says to his he's, he's saying to his uh, victims, I told you not to go out tonight, didn't I? Every time you go out, this kind of thing happens. He's saying this to himself, actually, that, you know, he shouldn't be going out. And that, of course, was also the tagline of the movie. That's, What's the that's tagline of the movie? I, I told you not to go out tonight, didn't I? Well, it's I told you not to go out tonight. But the, the line is I told you not to go out tonight, didn't I? Every time you go out, this kind of thing happens. Mm, okay. So... Um, and then of course there's this, this long rambling dialogue, internal dialogue, or I guess not, but this is something that he says at one point. Now you tell me what I should do. I heard about it. I always do. I can't go out for a minute. It's impossible. Fancy girls and their fancy dresses and lipstick laughing and dancing. Should you stop them? I can't stop them, but you do, don't you? And they can't laugh and they can't dance anymore. You've got to stop or they'll take you away from me. I will never, ever let them take you away from me. You're mine now forever. And I'm so happy. Yeah. Fucking for every incel out there. He, yeah. He is like the incel hero that they never knew they needed. Yeah. He's an incel Lord for sure. And then finally, I'll just, this is kind of a reiteration of that, but he's about to kill Rita. This it's that, uh, that, um, scene where you're, you think for a second that maybe he's going to spare this person, but she says, don't kill me. Don't kill me. Frank, don't kill me. And he says, no, no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to keep you. So you won't go away ever again. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 That was the one I almost wrote down. Actually. I like that one a lot. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, I feel like maybe either that line was referenced or used, or nodded to in some way by Slayer. Slayer has a song called Dead Skin Mask. On oh, yeah. Yeah, which is, it's a ref, it's an homage to Ed Gein, but there's that whole um, intro monologue that Tom Maria has, and it ends with, I promise I won't keep you long, I'll keep you forever. Yeah, I wonder if, um, well, I imagine that's just specifically an Ed Gein thing. Yeah, so, but again, if it is, maybe then it was reprised also for this. I bet both of these things are just pulling from game. Yes, correct. That's what I, I would agree. Um, that brings us to, uh, is it the spot the dick? The dick yes. Miller? Yes. All right, so we're going to we're gonna try and spot a dick here. In case you didn't know, uh, if you haven't listened before, uh, this award goes to basically an individual in the film that is kind of that guy, the that guy, the proverbial that guy. It's in reference to the legendary Dick Miller, who was in a bunch of movies and was always amazing in his little bit roles that he did, his character actor bit roles. And what we try to do is we try to find somebody in this movie that is an equivalent to Dick Miller. So... Pat, I'm going to ask you, did you spot yourself a dick? So mine is a little bit uh, the antithesis of this category, and at the same rate, it kind of jives with what 
we've kind of built up for what this category is because I picked Joe Spinell. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that I, so incidentally I did as well. Okay. Okay. Then because, we can just talk about it. Well, cause yeah, cause Joe Spinell up to this point was a, a, a character actor. You know, this is, I would say his only up to that point role as a leading man. Yeah. This is his first leading role. Um, and, but to backtrack, I, I so, I so cannot, he is so the mob guy in Rocky that I cannot dissociate at all whatsoever. I'm just like, why, why is the mob guy from Rocky lost his goddamn mind? Like he is so that guy from Rocky one and two. Um, yeah. So that immediately, I'm just I I'm always he will always be that guy from Rocky one and two as well as Godfather one and two, um, and we we mentioned Friedkin, but he's because Friedkin directed Cruising, right? Yes, and he's in he's in that he, as well. He's in Cruising and Taxi Driver. Yeah. Yes, he's also okay. So, incidentally, I would say for me, yes, he was always the Rocky guy, but more so, I would say he might be the the taxi driver guy. He's the he's the dispatch boss for me. Um, Rocky is the only one of ev- of these movies that we've mentioned that I've watched ten thousand plus times. <laughs> Whereas I've watched Cruising, I've seen Godfather one and two, I've seen Taxi Driver, but but yeah, he. Of all these movies, without doing any research, all of these came out before Maniac? <laughs> you, yes, they you did. Question mark? I know that Rocky 1 and 2 did. Cruising, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not sure, sure when Cruising came out. Cruising came out right before this, too. Like, so basically, like... He did Joe all Spinell. this shit right before Maniac. Yeah, Joe Spinell was like on a fucking roll, like up to this point. And That's so what he, I'm just, he just bankrolled some of his earnings from all of these movies. I know that specifically. So now that you mention it, because I did read, he used what he made making cruising to bankroll some offset some of the costs of this movie because it was a passion project for him. So yeah, cruising would yes. have to come before this because he used his cruising money specifically for to make this movie. So, yeah, he 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 made ten thousand dollars from his salary from cruising was ten thousand dollars. And he put six thousand of it into this role into into making this movie. Excuse me. Right. Right. Yeah. So. So um, real quick. So we know what's going on here. Godfather came out in 72. Godfather 2 came out in 74. Taxi Driver came out in 76. Rocky 1 came out in 76. Rocky two came out in 79 cruising cruising came out in 80. So basically like he, he did cruising and maniac pretty much back to back, but that's an incredible run. I mean, God damn. In terms of seventies cinema, you couldn't ask to be, have been a part of a, a greater group of movies. That's what I mean. That's why he was this, he was so perfect to do this sort of thing. And and the fact that he sacrificed himself on the altar of slasherdom. Considering yeah, that, to have done this, and maybe he felt a little bit typecast as a as a tough guy, Italian American mobster guy. Because even yeah. in Rocky, you know, even outside of Godfather, in Rocky, he he plays a fucking mobster 
who is bankrolling Rocky's career by providing him money to be a thumbbreaker for him. So like, yeah, he's a, he's a loan shark. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyways, yeah. So I agree there. I would say as alternates, what I would have had, I mean, cause there's not really, a, this is a pretty bare bones cast, but alternates for me would have been Tom Savini or, um, uh, Caroline Monroe. Because Caroline Monroe, up to that point, again, another like really weird choice for this movie, you know, and her being in this movie is directly tied to financing for this movie, which we'll get into more. But Caroline Monroe was like a Bond girl. She was also she was a British like Hammer actress. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, so she had a lot like under her belt before she got cast in this role as well. She was in Star Crash, which Joe Spinell was as well. I don't know how familiar you are with Star Crash. Not at all. Star Crash is, uh, it's an Italian ripoff of Star Wars. Sounds awful. (laughs) Yeah. And it's was, and Luigi Cosi who directed it, was known for being one of these notorious Italian directors that would just completely just rip off the entire premise of one movie and readapt it to an Italian version on like a completely like, like, you know, shoestring budget. Oh, Jesus. And he did this repeatedly and he did it with aliens. He did it with star Wars anyways. So, uh, star crash came out right before this as well. Um, we actually, I want to, I want to actually talk about Star Crash at some point too, uh, with this movie, cause it's pretty nuts. Um, so that's, that's it. How about Billy Pax? Who would you swap out for Billy um, Pax? Another, another week of just, I would just make him Frank Zito. <laughs> I would make him the lead role, which I think we're kind of. Uh, we're kind of spinning our wheels in the mud here because I feel like every movie we've come up with now, it's just like, well, Billy P would just be the the lead guy. There has been some exceptions, but in this, I would just make him Frank Zito. But I wanted to tie it into, because I feel like he's channeling, Frank Zito is channeling similar energy. live okay uh maniac uh episode part do wow so we so you haven't seen frailty i haven't seen frailty no so you should see frailty first of all it's billy p and it's his directorial debut and matthew mcconaughey is in it and it's his directorial debut is a psychological horror sold so yeah, sold. Yeah. Anyway, I think he does a lot of of things in that movie uh, that he could lend himself to being Frank Zito in this movie. Yeah. But who did you have for Billy Paxton? Oh yeah, I think I just I actually left it blank because I was like, whatever. It's got to be Joe. It's got to be Joe Spinell. Yeah. Yeah. Swap okay. Out. Yep. That was that was all I could think of. Again, <laughs> it's just such a sparse cast. You can't really, you know, it's hard. It's hard to interchange people like that. Like that, like we have to with this category when that's the case. 
Makes okay, sense. Okay, moving on. Directorial trifecta. We've already did, you know, Maniac Cop. We already discussed William Lustig's trifecta, and we both admitted that we haven't seen a whole lot of his movie, movies between the ones we've already talked about. So I feel like that's a moot point right now. So. Yeah, if you're curious about the directorial trifecta, go revisit the Maniac Cop episode where we talk about that in greater detail. But for now, we'll gloss over this category. And in future episodes, if we ever do a a director multiple times, we'll probably just have to gloss over this category. Yes, unless... For some reason, maybe in between episodes, you might have seen more of their filmography and and we get updated. But otherwise, we haven't in in the interim. So, fuck the category. Okay, body count, right? Top of the wiki wormhole, body count. So, I had – let me count again. Two, four, six, eight people. Yes. Seven if you don't count – if you don't count uh, Zito, okay, and eight, eight counting. Right, and I actually meant to mention this in the questions because it is implied at the end of the movie that he actually is not dead. His eyes open up, so that's that's a little ambiguous there. But for for all intents and purposes, let's just say he he is dead. So that is eight people. That just seems like a really shitty horror movie trope, right? That they just tossed in well, there. You, so whatever. Well, you know, that's a good segue into the wiki wormhole because, and I actually didn't have this right written down but i did want to mention it there was slated to be a maniac act cop or uh, sorry a maniac two. Oh, but, okay well that's why they always do that kind of shit at the end so they can leave the door open for that kind of right. stuff but apparently the premise the premise of maniac two i don't think it had anything to do with frank zito it was a completely different story with with the the title retained uh, apparently the the new story was supposed to be about a a Children's show host that kills abusive parents. Oh, wow. And they. But why have him open his eyes at the end? Because I bet they. Maybe they thought originally they were going to have, you know, Zito come back and they just changed their mind. That's all. They left the, they left the opportunity open for the. They left the door right. open. Yeah. But otherwise, it's just, it's just a, it's just a, yeah, a very kind of stock cliffhanger sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so Maniac, uh, Maniac, God damn it, you want to say Maniac Cop. Maniac 2 did not get made essentially because Joe Spinell was just a garbage can of a man uh, at that point and he really couldn't act anymore and he subsequently died not too long after because he liked to live life to the fullest and he just basically kind of crapped out in his uh in his apartment one night in his he fell down in his shower and he was also a hemophiliac and apparently just bled to death yeah it sounded like he fell in the shower gow got somehow in impaled by the by the sliding door and then kind of crawled to his couch and took a nap and bled out yeah that's <laughs> that's what i've heard God damn. Yeah. Rough way to go, bruh. I guess. I get I mean, there there's worse, I suppose, than napping yourself to that's death. True. But like that's just, right. such a lazy way to go out. Yeah. I just feel like he kind of just his body was pretty broken at that point, so he's like, whatever, it's my time. God damn. Shit okay. the bed. Okay. Shit the bed, Fred. Uh at the top besides all of that, at the top of my list, I had that this movie 
was made with no permits, completely guerrilla style. And so that would lend kind of an explanation to what we were talking about earlier with the the poor focusing and the poor oh yeah you know, the poor filming is because they had to get out of dodge right after they started recording right and so much so that <laughs> there was a lot of things that they kind of had to do on the fly because that one of them being that the shotgun head exploding scene when that happened they had to have multiple people on deck because also there, there's a New York law that you can't have. You, there's no carry carrying of firearms within the city limits. So when they fired off the shotgun, when when Savini fired off the shotgun, he had to hand it off to their friend who was an off duty cop himself, apparently. And basically, like he had to split before the cops got there, so nobody was uh, caught with any firearms. And then, is there not an easier way of just? pretending to fire a shotgun and putting in a shotgun sound afterwards no i like that seems crazy that they had to fire a shotgun into the windshield of a car dude, that is sick though that like that's the- <laughs> well yeah i love that but <laughs> i love that but that's nuts it is insane and <laughs> that car that was used that i can't remember I have it somewhere in here. I'll have to clarify. Blue Buick Electra. So either that car, one of the cars that were used, it was either the car. It was that car. Sorry. I I do remember now because uh, Savini was talking about it last night when I was watching uh, drive last drive in. So they basically, they just pushed that. They drove that car, pushed it into the water after it had been used as a prop. So he's saying, yeah, somewhere at the bottom of the river, there is this car with this dummy with its head exploded. That's maybe that's someday so tight. We'll, we'll get dredged and people will be like, what it's the fuck still is this? In there. It's got to still be down in there. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not like that body's there. decomposing. No. So, um, another thing, so there was several, as far as I know, just two, but whatever. There might have been more and I missed, but there were several porn actresses used to kind of yeah, uh, I, I read scrim- that too. Scrimple, scrimp a little bit on the, the, the casting budget here. The two that it's were scrimp used. and save. Right? Well, hey, if you got a scrimp, you got to get them porno actresses. They'll work <laughs> for anything, you know? No, but uh, the two actresses that were used apparently were actually – I'm not familiar. There's a lot about the golden age, like 70s porn that I'm, I'm I'm not familiar with as much as I do enjoy some of that stuff. But apparently the two that were – that had pretty prominent roles, one of them being um, – Abigail Clayton, who played Rita, and the other lady I'm drawing a blank on, they apparently are pretty famous porn actresses from that from that era. So yeah, that, I had never. Cool. They didn't ring a bell. Uh, yeah, I wasn't familiar with either one of them. And also, we were talking about earlier um, Savini being a bit of a ladies' man. So it was revealed last night. Also, this is not something that I read on the internet. The woman that he is about to bone in the car, the disco woman, he actually ended up hooking up with that actress. Uh, oh my god! During the, during the making of the movie, at some point. So that's pretty. I sick. guess Wait, if you're shooting a couple takes of titty sucking scenes, uh, that'll get the that'll get the juices flowing. Yeah, I'm just. I wonder that a lot with like movies where there are you know, explicit sex roles like that. Um, 
that are basically pornographic. Um, if the actors and actresses do continue um, off screen because it's already like, well, you've already gone this far. Might as well consummate this. So I wonder that myself. Um, but well, in this case, it did there's happen. the infamous, the infamous uh, example of the Michael Douglas and um, Sharon Stone scene, <laughs> sex scene in a right. Fatal Attraction, where he's like eating her out a la Hannibal, Le- Hannibal Lecter uh, fucking going to town on some shit. Like it, it's, it's like almost unsexy. I, I can't imagine Sharon Stone. I mean, she notoriously, I mean that, that whole, she's very open about, about that scene and how they shot it and stuff. But I think sometimes it can go the other way. It can go the other direction right. where you're just like, sure. This, this dude's just between my legs for 12 hours a day for three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not, not sexy at all. At I that don't point. want that ever um, again. It's just, yeah. it's just, right. It's, this is, it's, it's troublesome and irritating. Um, Dario Argento was originally slated to be the co-producer of this movie as well. His wife at the time, Dar- Daria Nicolodi was slated to play the role of Anna and she so I, I've, I've gotten conflicting info about this. I read that she didn't do it because she was obligated to working on Inferno. But what I also heard was basically there was a misunderstanding as to what her role implied. And she basically was like, I don't want to do all those lesbian sex scenes in the movie, <laughs> which there's none of, there's absolutely none of that at all. Yeah. There's what no, the fuck? Zero, lesbian, <laughs> lesbian, zero sapphic energy in this happening in this movie. So whatever. So she didn't end up doing it. The role was taken by Carolyn Monroe. Like we said, because her husband, um, Judd Hamilton, who's a British producer, agreed to put up $200,000 to complete the movie as long as she was in the lead role. So that's why she's there. Huh. That's such yeah. a weird roundabout thing. Right. And also Goblin was slated to do the soundtrack, but that didn't happen as well. But we got Jay Chataway's soundtrack, which is fucking killer. So whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, I like that yeah, just as much as like Goblin stuff. Um. Tom Savini said that he felt that some of his uh, practical effects on this went a little too far, which I thought was kind of funny. I saw that too. What the fuck? What a weird, I mean, of all people, that's, that's strange that he was like, this is, this may have been a little too much. (laughs) This is too far. Um, let's see what else. Oh, um, Going back to some car talk with this, the car that Zito drives, that that was Lustig's car. So that's why I just had to make sure I got my information correct. I didn't get my wire described. That was also that was Lustig's car. And apparently that was damaged during the making of the movie. And it just basically he just abandoned it because it would have cost him more money to get it towed away than to just abandon it somewhere. So a lot of a lot of cars were ditched in the making of this of this movie. Yeah, what a shame. That sucks. Um, going back to talking about that, that pencil neck fuck, uh, Gene Siskel and what happened with his impact with the movie, with his, with his, um, discussion about it. 
Um, apparently, <clears throat> they were originally for promotional purposes going to have these kiosks in front of the theaters that would film the graphic, more gory scenes of the movie as a, as a teaser. And basically because of Gene Siskel crying about it, they couldn't do that. So they had to pull the kiosks. So fuck you, Gene Siskel. Yeah, and the, Siskel, the kiosks were like a – was a real – the kiosks were a real uh, – that, that was like really inventive and innovative. Like for the what time, a cool yeah, idea. Yes. Would have been super cool. Um, so yeah. Oh, I also uh, wanted to mention along with Daria Nicolodi, other potential people that were uh, slated to be in the cast, which this would have been really weird. It doesn't say anywhere who they were supposed to be um, after some rewrites or whatever. They might've written these people out as potential characters, but Susan Tyrell, who I don't know if you're familiar with Susan Tyrell, Pat, but she the is, name a is not ring a bell. okay. She's a phenomenal actress. She plays, I'm drawing a blank on her name, but in Crybaby, she is the girlfriend of Iggy Pop. You no, I've not seen about? Crybaby. You know. Okay. Susan Tyrell's fantastic. She was also in The Forbidden Zone. She's in a really fucking insane movie called Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker that I like a lot. Great actress, just a nut, a complete nut, really unique person. And also Jason Miller, who played Father Karras in The Exorcist, was supposed to be uh, oh, apparently in this weird. movie. weird. Wow. <laughs> um, and let's see, as far as what I have, last but not least, um, <clears throat> the hotel where the uh, murder of the prostitute takes place, there was an actual murder that had happened uh, in that hotel around the time of the making of the movie. Yeah, I saw that too. And that they uh and that they dressed up they in the real investigation they dressed up mannequins in the victim's clothes as like a as a way of like trying to like jog people's memories yeah. and shit. I don't know. That's crazy. Yeah. That's what I got. Do you got anything else? No, that was um anything that I was going to mention was was hashed out uh uh in, better than I would have hashed it out. So uh, kudos to you. Yeah. Very, very cool. Okay. So we are at the point where we need to assign a rating for this movie. Right? Yes. So I would say, once again, we uh, with the iconography, we don't have animals in this case, so we can't use any animals as far as I know. There's no... We already used the straight razor, or at least we talked about it with Phenomena. Let's see. Well, I would okay. Let's say for this one, the icons would be out of five creepy, bloody, uh, dead scalp wearing mannequins. What do you think? Yeah, I, I just put mannequins. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Out of five mannequins, what would you rate this, Pat? It's a tough... It's a tough rating. Um, yeah. I'm going to say three and a half. Ooh, really? Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to give it at least a four, maybe even a four and a half. So we're, that's, we're pretty close. Yeah. I, I was going to bump it up to a four. Um, I have no, I have no reasoning other than three and a half feels about right. Yeah. And, and then you, in terms of a midnight rating, right? Yeah. This is a this is definitely a midnight movie. 
This is yeah, I would just say this, mid- might, this, this is past midnight. One a.m. One a.m. <laughs> movie, yeah. definitely a midnight movie, definitely a movie you watch late at night while you're again on the uh, clock. It'd be it'd be on midnight for sure. Yeah, while you're staring blankly, slack jawed in the darkness at your television, sweating profusely. And mumbling to yourself to try and quiet the voices in your head at 1 a.m. About how you're going to fucking kill your mom. Kill your mom because you love your mom so much and she was a whore. So you're going to go kill whores (laughs) that represent, that are symbolic of the whore of your mother. The whore that is your mother. Complex stuff. I think that's it, right? So we can wrap this up. This absolutely uh, this trying episode of Midnight Flicks. Holy moly. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, you you had a better you had a better day than I did. (laughs) You know, in terms of this, in terms of our listeners, they're nary the wiser. And Nary the Wiser, once again, to all of our technical issues that we have behind the scenes. You don't Listeners, let me tell you, all all five of you, let me tell you, you don't know the work, the blood, the sweat, the tears that goes into making Midnight Flicks to deliver it to you on a weekly basis. So the calm, the piss, the shit. We got to start asking you fools for money here pretty soon. I'm telling you what, it's coming. We're going to be getting, we're going to shake down the, the lint at the bottom of these pockets. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take on the role not as Joe Spinell as of Mania as Maniac, but Joe Spinell as Lone, Lone Sharp. We're gonna come break your thumbs. Oh, that's right. Well, then, we, we would be we would be Rocky in that situation. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay, so Pat, before we sign off here, what do you have in store for us to watch next time? <laughs> We are going to watch, which is so funny that I mentioned Michael Douglas earlier with Fatal Attraction. Ooh. We're going to watch, not Fatal Attraction, Falling Down, 1983, Joel oh, Schumacher. Oh, shit. You just completely, you, you, you sideswiped me with this one. I fucking this love Falling Down. This- I do too, and man, I have not watched this in a long time, so this is going to be a real trip down memory lane. He is like the proto... He is a proto-MAGA guy. (laughs) I was going to say, if there's any time that we need to be talking about angry white men, boy, do we need to talk about it now. Defense, we should... We need to like... I, I can do it in my free time, but we should Photoshop a MAGA hat on defense because... <laughs> he's it's basically what what he's what it's become at this point. But back in 1993, yeah. this archetype uh, had a whole different kind of uh, meaning to it. So I'm excited Absol- to, to watch it. Yeah, this is the thing that definitely, within certain historical contexts, takes on a whole different shade. So yeah, it'll be interesting to analyze it through the 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 present lens with all the turmoil that's going on uh, currently as well. So great. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Pat. Okay. 
This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music as always. Our outro music is brought to you by Indianapolis band Boddicker. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail. That's F-I-L-F-L-I-X. I probably fuck that up every week and don't realize it. F-L-I-X-Pod. <laughs> or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod. For co-host Pat Mitchell, I am Adam Walker, and we're going to see you... Hopefully, I'm guessing, unless the world officially does fucking end next time. All right. Hey, 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 h